behind me and things, but uh, some context for this letter is written by John, uh, hence the name, uh, the disciple of Jesus who also wrote one of the Gospels and was one of Jesus's three best friends. John wrote it because some people that John actually describes calls, he names them antichrists. Uh, they're against Christ. They've shown up and they've been bothering this church to whom John is writing, this unnamed church, uh, because they've made these believers unsure about who God is, what he has done in Jesus, and who they were in relation to Jesus' work. And John writes, he says, so that they may know the truth about those things. This morning, we're dropping into the very opening of John's attempt at that in chapter 1. Uh, and we'll be talking about, really, the subject of happiness. That's really what uh, we're centering on this morning. We, as 21st century Americans, we are obsessed with being happy. Uh, the pursuit of it made its way into our Declaration of Independence as a basic human right. And since then, we've only gotten more demanding in our search for happiness. Uh, Maddie and I are somewhat, my wife Maddie is here, uh, are somewhat unapologetic watchers of a show called Love is Blind on Netflix. Uh, you're like, you should be apologetic about that. Um, no, I'm not. I refuse. But there's a, a scene where at the end they have to decide whether they're going to marry anybody. And it's so interesting to me that every single piece of advice, all anyone can tell these people about whether they should get married is, just think about whether you'll be happy. Just think about what's going to make you happy. And it's like, I mean, both things are going to include some unhappy things. I don't know what kind of advice that is, but that's, that's the only locus they have for how to advise someone for what to do. What will make you happy? Uh, I think also about the original uh, Toy Story. If you've watched, that's my favorite animated movie of all time. We, you meet a cowboy toy named Woody at the opening, and he's proudly the, the toy of an owner named Andy, often displaying his Sharpie's name on the bottom of his boot. And he famously, at one point, even grabs his nemesis-turned-best friend, Buzz Lightyear, and yells at him, You are a toy! Right? You're, you're, you aren't the real Buzz Lightyear. You're, you're an action figure. Right? He says, You are a child's plaything. Tries to get this across to him. Because he's proud of that. Uh, but in the latest Toy Story sequel, what? What happens is we've grown more and more accustomed to, to happiness being the locus. Joy, uh, Woody decides to shirk his responsibility as a toy, right? In the latest one, he decides, well, because it will make me happiest, I will abandon my owner, Bonnie, and live free and pursue happiness with Bo Peep, right? We live in an age where the best advice anyone can give is listen to your heart and do what will make you happy, what this illustrates is that our decision-making, our understanding of what is good and what is bad, we live and breathe and swim and eat and in a culture that says you have an unobjectionable right to personal happiness. No one has a right to make you do anything that will not make you happy. And into this search for happiness, right, John is going to submit to us, or to put it in his own language, he's going to proclaim to us the good and satisfying answer for that longing for joy. It's not new to want to be happy, but uh, John is going to put us squarely in front of the person who will make us so. And so as we go through our, uh, our passage, it's my goal that we're going to see two things this morning, two things. I want us to see the joyful content 
of John's message. And I want us to see the joyful consequences of John's message. Let's read it together. This is 1 John 1, 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we, also, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, let's pray. Dear God, uh, I'm simply going to ask that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, let's dive into the passage and consider our first point, the joyful content of John's message. Will you all look with me at verses 1 through 3? Look at me at verses 1 through 3. You'll notice that the first three verses here are one giant run-on sentence. Right? And, it, and it gets a little hard to understand because John also interrupts his thought with an independent clause in verse 2. And then he repeats himself in verse 3 to signal that he's picking up back on the thing he started in verse 1. Right? It's made further confusing by the fact that John starts the sentence with the object, this word of life, which was from the beginning that he's seen, heard, and touched. Usually in English, right, we start our sentences with the subject. We use subject, verb, object, word order, unlike the Greek. For example, take a sentence like, Will Levis threw the football, right? Uh, Will Levis, a subject, threw the verb, the football, an object upon which the subject acts, right? This makes good sense, right? Somebody does something to something else. So if we were to write John's first three verses in better English, we might say something like, We, the subject, proclaim, the verb, that which was from the beginning, which we've seen, heard, and touched. We proclaim that. We proclaim this thing from the beginning. And John calls this proclamation a word of life. Given how this phrase, word of life, is used elsewhere in the New Testament, in Acts 5 and Philippians 2, this refers to the message which conveys life to men. Elsewhere called the gospel, right, or good news. It's a message full of life that is itself life-giving. But then it gets a little confusing in verse 1, doesn't it? How, if that's the case, if it's a message, how do you touch a word? How do you like touch a message? And, and what does it mean in verse 2 that it was from the beginning and has been made manifest? Here, John is intentionally conflating this Christian message with the person of Jesus, who John also says is from the beginning in his first chapter of his gospel. Jesus is the proclaimed message, and the proclaimed message is Jesus. Now, that might be a little confusing. Like, how can, how can a message be a person? Uh, the easiest way to understand this is probably to think about how couples fight, right? For my single friends, just imagine for a second with me. Your significant other might come to you after a fight with like a 40-piece chicken McNugget or like a hug to communicate to you their love, right? But your significant other might also send you a note, or more likely in the 21st century, right, they'll, they'll text you and tell you that they love you and that they're sorry, right? If you go the text route, you don't receive a text and say, 
my boyfriend's text says he's sorry, right? You say, my boyfriend's sorry. You can't text them, you're forgiven, but then the next time you see your significant other, you know, you're still mad at them, expecting them to apologize anew because only their text said they were sorry, right? What if, what if you came home uh, from where you had like chatted with your wife, hey, I'm sorry about this thing. Like, we'll talk when we get home. You come home and then she's like kind of brisk with you. And then you said like, hey, what's going on? And she said, well, I'm still waiting for you to apologize. You, your text said you were sorry, but I don't know if you are, you are sorry. You'd say they're the same thing, right? The, the message is bound up with who they are. The same is true of Jesus. And his life-giving message is the same one that he proclaimed about himself and lived out as John witnessed that even though we, God's creation, have rebelled against him, Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who is himself God, became a man, lived the perfect life that you and I could not, uh, was obedient in a way that we could not be, took on God's wrath and curse due to us for our sin, and credited us the righteousness that we have not earned, to reconcile us to God and to everyone else and to have everlasting life with him. That's what Jesus came here to do. He embodied that message. It's one and the same thing. To talk about the gospel is to talk about Jesus. To put it in John's own words, God so loved the world that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That, that is the that which that John is now proclaiming. This is the story of our world, John claims, that we are reconciled to God through Christ, by pure and unmerited grace. I have a friend who does this job, who does my job, but at Western Kentucky University, he's since gone on to do something else, but his first semester on campus, he went to purchase a parking pass to be on campus. It works the same way as it does at most campuses, right? There are different levels that you can park in. If you get like, you know, the worst parking pass at WKU, you have to park in a place called Egypt, and you park there, and that's what everyone calls it. Uh, I'm sure it has an actual name, but that's what everybody calls it. And you have to like basically take a bus to get to the top of the hill. Like you can't walk there. It would take you 30 minutes, right? So uh, every day he, you know, parks in this thing and has to wait for the bus, and he, he gets his parking pass. But he heard by his second year on campus, he had heard that there actually was something called a super premium parking pass on campus. This pass allows you to basically park on top of fire hydrants. You can just pull straight into buildings, knock it over. It doesn't matter. It's all good. You can park wherever you want on campus. Fire lanes, that's a suggestion to this pass, right? And so he, he hears about it. He goes, hey, what do you have to do to get on, on that super premium parking pass? Can I get one of those? And she goes, well, it's actually just by like a standby list. It's like, you, you know, it just comes up. Only so many people get them. And he goes, really? Okay, can I get on the list? And she goes, sure. She's typing away. He goes, just out of curiosity, how, how quick does that list turn over? She goes, every 10 to 15 years. And he goes, he goes, well, you know, who knows, right? Like, maybe I'll be here for a while. And he, you know, leaves. A couple years go by. It's, he's like in his fourth year. And he goes to get his parking pass in the fall. And he goes up to the lady and he says, like, hey, uh, just curious, you know, I want my Egypt pass, but if I could, I'd just like to know where I'm at on the list. And she goes, I can check for you. She looks up and then she gets this like kind of, she looks at him like this, you know, that look, right? And then looks back and she goes, so uh, 
you actually got off the list. And he goes, great. And she goes, in March? And the window was two weeks. And so I'm sorry, but, you, you know, I could add your name to the bottom of the list. And he goes, he goes, is there, I mean, I am so sorry. There's got to be, and, you know, it's one of those things where, like, you can tell she ain't budging. You know what I mean? Like, and so he's, like, trying to plead with her. He's like, I'm, I, you know, and just about that time, man walks in, you know, full suit. And he goes, what seems, what's the issue? And, and he, like, tries to explain. And the guy just holds up a hand. And he goes, come with me takes him back to an office and he's, you know, the whole way back to the office, like, but there's a spam folder. And sometimes they, he's like trying his best to like explain what's going on. And the guy uh, it gets to the office and then just holds up his hand again, reaches into his desk and pulls out right there, a super premium parking pass, hands it over to him. And he says, check your email a little more often. I tell that story because we've been given something a lot better than a super premium parking pass. Friends, this, this is what it's like to receive the gospel, only it's a way better. God has justified you by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And like my friend, begging and pleading his hopeless case, you could not earn it, right? The lady was looking, you know, the lady is looking at you, shaking her head, and God steps in. Right? He's, he, he has taken you back to his office. He's pulled it out and at all the cost to himself has given you what you could never earn. It has to be a gift, freely given. God is offering that to us this morning and we need to receive it. John writes this whole letter so that this church would receive it. Some of us have grown cold to that good news. Right? We started out so happy to receive this pass only to find ourselves not even using it. We scour perimeter lots Right? We still park in Egypt because we want to do it on our own. Surely that's what God wants. Surely God wants me to shape up. Surely by now I should be able to do this. I don't need to use this pass. I need to try harder to be patient with my kids or not lust or eat right. Then I'll be worthy of God. Then I'll be worthy of the, of the love he wants to give me. And so you just keep parking in Egypt. You keep failing at holiness and to make matters worse, repentance. You can't come to God because God expects you to do it all on your own, in your mind. And when in reality, actually, he wants you to cling even tighter to the gospel than when you first believed it, right? It didn't just get you started. It takes you all the way there. Use the gospel. Come to God with your, your sin. And others here, right, might just think this is too good to be true, right? Just like my friend standing there with his mouth wide open, you think, why would somebody do that? Why would Jesus do that for me, right? It, Nick, if you, knew, if you knew what I'd done this week, you wouldn't be so sure that God wants to give me love and affection, that God died for me. He certainly wouldn't take that penalty on himself. And what I want you to hear this morning, if you hear nothing else this morning, I want you to hear that God did not make a mistake, that Jesus, the God-man, walked among us. John touched him. He heard him. And he is here to tell you this morning that he has good news, that he wants to give you life, life and life abundant. His life, death, and resurrection have earned your justification before God. You are right with him forever. It's a final act. There's no need, to be, it's no, there's no need for it to be repeated Forever God has done that. And he came to die for you. John saw him and it was not a mistake.
It's not a mistake anymore than the you know, director of parking and transportation knew what he was doing. He knew that this would make my friend happy, and he was happy to do it. Take it. Enjoy the gospel. Rest in its grace. That's what it's there for. But what does that mean for us this week? Right? What is that going to mean coming up? Right? Okay. Yes, I should. Re- yeah, I, I believe it. I, I need to see that again. I, I understand that. You know, I kind of thought I got off on a, I got off on a tangent, Nick. You're right. I thought for a while that God would love me based on what I'm doing. I, I, I slip into that. But how do I get out? What, do, what does it look like uh, to have Jesus be the good news in my life? Well, let's consider then our second point: the joyful consequences of John's message. The first uh, consequence is fellowship. Look at me at verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. If God has acted in Jesus' death to reconcile us to himself, and that is the primary message we believe about our lives, then that reality is not just a vertical one, it's also a horizontal one. The identity of being marked out and forgiven affects those around us as well. It creates fellowship with fellow Christians as we are brought into a community that is in relationship with the same God who is mercy at his core. Jesus makes the same point in Matthew 18. There he tells a story about a a king who had a servant that owed him 10,000 years worth of wages. But then uh, once that debt is forgiven, the servant goes out and finds a guy who owes him a couple months worth of wages and literally chokes him and throws him in jail. And the king gets very angry in this story that Jesus is telling. And he says this, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant? as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt, his 10,000 years worth of debt. So also, Jesus says, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Grace goes somewhere. Grace is not just meant for you. It's meant to be overflowing in you and poured out on other people. If our primary primary identity is being forgiven the debt of sin and being loved in such a deep way by Jesus' sacrifice for us, then we will naturally extend that same grace to our neighbors. That is fellowship. And John tells us that this is the bedrock of Christian community, that this is what this, this word of life brings, that we will be, forgive, uh, we will be heavy with forgiveness and self-forgetful love. Like those will be the hallmarks of our Christian friendships. Have you asked someone for forgiveness lately? When's the last time you asked for forgiveness? When's the last time you offered forgiveness, right? Fellowship, deep and abiding fellowship. If we aren't doing that regularly with each other, then we have to ask, do we know that we ourselves have been forgiven? Have you been forgiven? Right? Do you really trust Jesus? Do you see that you are sinful and you need him? This is why the church celebrates communion each week. We'll do this in a moment. But it's a communal meal where we're all united to the same Christ and together with one body. And that's why also before you take it, you should reconcile with one another. Right? Because we're supposed to be united. We love one another. And this letter is an encouragement not to give up on these things. 
Right? It's even why you, uh, you know, send me to a campus like UK to bring students into, that, into this fellowship, right? Not simply just to get them saved so they can go wander around on their own, but so that they can be met by the church where they are on the campus, right? It's why you have things like a neighborhood cookout, right? It's fun. Yeah, sure. Do it because it's fun. But if all we're doing is eating a hamburger without Jesus, what have you to celebrate, right? The church without Jesus at its center is, is a country club, right? As nice as people may be and as caring as they might be about social issues, without Jesus at the center forgiving us, what have we to offer the world? It's empty apart from the giving and receiving of sacrificial love that binds this community together. But this fellowship is not the sole consequence of this life-giving word. There's another. The second consequence is, uh, consequence of John's message is that it brings fullness of joy, complete joy. Look at me at verse 4. It says this, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John and his readers share a fullness of joy in believing John's proclamation. This, he says, is why he has written, so that they can have complete joy. Now, I need to be careful right on the front to, to not say that if you place your faith in Jesus about your, you know, your life is going to be smooth sailing, everything's going to go easy for you, you'll be happy all the time. Ask anybody in here if that's been their story. They'll quickly disillusion you to that reality, right? In John's own gospel in chapter 11, Jesus openly weeps at the tomb of his friend Lazarus who has died, even though he himself would raise Lazarus just moments later. Sadness is part of the Christian life. So what does it mean then to have complete joy? To have, to mean, what does it mean to be happy and, and to that happiness to be complete as a consequence of the, of the gospel and Christ-centered community? How does that give us joy? Well, Paul touches on this a bit in his letter to the Romans in, eight, in chapter 8. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also with him, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We know that God is with us because he didn't spare his own son. Our joy is complete in the sense that we can trust that all things are working for our good. Uh, a shooting in Louisville, a shooting in Nashville, things that make us think the world is not as it should be. How can there be joy in this world? How can God care about what's happening? How can he claim that? We can claim that because we look to the cross. That's not because God's indifferent, right? Whatever's happening in your life right now, you can have joy and it can be complete because God is not indifferent to your suffering. In fact, he's entered into this world and suffered in your place. And to make sure that one day all suffering ends. That's the reality. Whatever you're facing this week, God is assuring you and your joy may be complete if you believe the word of life that is, Jesus is making all things new. It doesn't happen all at once, but it's coming as sure as he raised from the dead. One day, this community will endure in two, a new heavens and a new earth, right? Even, uh, we read this earlier in the service, even Joseph being enslaved in slavery, right? Being sold by his brothers. God meant that for good. He is at work and that work will last into eternity, God will make good on his promises, and he's made those promises in the blood of his son. We can have confidence 
joy in the midst of sorrow because God is giving us his best, even when we don't understand. So we see that the content of John's message, namely that there's good news of God's unmerited love for us in Christ, drives us into a reconciled community that is rooted in joyful truth and longing and and a sure future. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray that we believe that. I pray that we would believe your gospel, that we would believe that you are at work in this world, reconciling us to yourself uh, primarily and then secondarily to one another. That you, uh, that we have reason for joy, not because of, you know, some fulfilled longing of, you know, living our best life now, but because you have come into this world and given us all that we need for real joy. I pray that that would drive us into a season of repentance and forgiveness, that we would be quick to love one another, to be humble with one another, to seek to serve one another, uh, and that that would all uh, just adorn the gospel with beauty, so much so that the entire city of Lexington, our state, our world, would know who you are and your goodness. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.